0: You know they say all things come to those who wait it can usually mean bad things as much as good things but anyway all things come to those who wait and i've been waiting for six days to this day uh, some time ago a few weeks back anyway when the schedule first came out that i was being given an opportunity to give a sermon here at the feast of tabernacles and at the virginia beach feast site Uh, i didn't really because there are so many top ministers here from headquarters and the east coast but it was assigned to me and i've been waiting for it and i'm looking forward to it and as i say i'm probably a bit over prepared but i'm glad to be here i'm full of anticipation you know we sang that song before we heard the children it won't be long now Till all these things are going to change It won't be long now till peace will be everywhere I do believe that song when it was first composed by Mr. Judson He composed so many hymns that we sing nowadays in the hymnal In addition to of course uh, Dwight Armstrong's hymns But when that song was first composed It was meant to be a song for the children to sing in the choir at the feast And it, it was just so suitable for the children Because it was simple to learn and it had a simple melody And easy to remember and easy to sing But everyone enjoyed it so much. Before we knew it, it was in the songbook, and we've been singing it ever since. That was way back in in about the 50s, late 50s or 60s. Um, Mr. Lyons mentioned that uh, I was uh, graduated from Brickett Wood. Uh, It's easy to mistake those things, but I actually went to Pasadena. Pasadena was the only college that existed when I went to college, ambassador, that is, and that was in 1957. It was not till 1959 that we obtained the property. 58, we obtained the property. 59, we were working on it and getting it ready, and it opened in my last year in college. But I finished up my college career in, in, in Pasadena itself. I graduated there. But it was in bricketwood where I was ordained uh, in, in graduation day 1962 by Mr. Armstrong, along with Mr. Aparian and another man. How beautiful it is to see children blessed. Uh, this is uh, remarkable to me because last year I gave the sermon after the blessing of children, which was also on the Sabbath day, and it also followed, was followed by the family day the next day. So it's kind of deja vu. I'm doing it for the second time running. I guess some people might think there's something uh, you know, symbolic about that. There's some deep meaning in it, but I'm not one of those people to see those kind of things. I'm just happy to have the opportunity. Anyway, what a blessing it is to see our children blessed. Parents look forward to it, and grandparents. And uh, often people come to this service when we have the blessing of children who aren't in the church, but their children are, and they're going to be blessed, and they want to see that happen. It doesn't happen that often, does it? It only happens for about each child once in a lifetime. God's blessing is such a simple ceremony Like all of God's ceremonies, uh, being anointed when you're sick is is a very simple ceremony. We kneel or maybe we stand and uh, the minister places some oil on our forehead or somewhere, usually our forehead, and he lays his hands and then he prays a prayer. And the prayer doesn't take but maybe a minute, two minutes. It could be longer. But it depends maybe on how serious the sickness is. We might pray longer, but basically we pray and it's a simple ceremony you don't need a high school education you don't really need any education except to know that god asks us to call for the elders of the church and be anointed when we're sick like this blessing of children it's such a simple ceremony but it's so full of meaning as mr lee was bringing out we all want our children to be under the blessing of god most churches handle that by saying as soon as they're born about as soon as they're born they have a ceremony they call christening and they touch them with a little water and ask god to be with them and at that point the church regards the children as being in the church although the children had no say in the matter didn't have any knowledge of what was going on but still they're considered to be members of the church at that point and from then on of course a little later about early teenage still before they're old enough to make a decision for themselves and decide for themselves they have a process called at least sometimes called confirmation and then they make a decision uh, about to to be full church members along with their parents at that point but they're still before the age of real adult accountability i was saying uh, the blessing of children anointing of the sick uh, ordination is such a simple ceremony every ceremony every even baptism is a simple ceremony it doesn't take long a very few minutes And then, again, with the laying on of hands, we ask God to give a person the gift of his Holy Spirit and become a fully begotten child of his. So God gives us these ceremonies. I call them ceremonies. Sometimes they're called rites, R-I-T-E-S. It means the same thing. A simple ceremony, but it is effective in God's sight. It carries a whole lot of weight. When we do that, God is pleased with it. And he does perform a real, tangible miracle from then on angels are set around our children and he watches over their upbringing even accidents they learn from it but nonetheless he watches over them and sees to it that from for virtually all of them they grow up to full adulthood and go on to um, being members of the church and become members of the kingdom of god when the time is right i was struck mr lee did mention this scripture in, in matthew 18 about how jesus christ and made a message for all of us as adults we're blessing our children and we're thrilled to see them come under god's blessing how much jesus loved the little children and he saw in those little children what we need to be even as adults and yet he knew he knew what was in all men he knew what happens to us as we continue to grow up we learn the ways of the world we learn carnal human nature and we become conniving and we we make uh, decisions based on what's in our own best interests And by the time we're full adults, we don't have that innocency that little children have. Little children believe anything you tell them. If you tell them the moon is made out of blue cheese, they will will believe it. That's why it's so tragic to teach them about Santa Claus and and all about that, uh, that matter. Because they believe it. And then later, when they find out it's not true after all, then it makes them wonder what can they believe. And they start doubting. And then they start losing faith in God altogether. And then the idea that a man called Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the dead and went up to heaven and he's waiting there to come back again, even that becomes beyond their their ability to accept it. Anyway, it's beautiful. And the blessing of children does have this uh, lesson for all of us as adults. And I wanted to make those comments before I go on here. How well is the Father in heaven your Abba Father? That's not quite the title, but it's getting close. You know, the Bible in the New Testament uses the term Abba, A-double-B-A, Abba, Father. It's a Syriac word or, or a word of another language, but it was carried over right into the English translation because it represents an incredibly close, intense, intimate relationship, the kind of relationship we have with our mother and our father. And so in at least three places you can find the term Abba, Father. I won't turn to them. will let you find them if you are interested in doing that. But it does represent a deep, close, intimate, personal relationship with our Father. The Bible makes it very clear in the Gospels that Jesus Christ had that same kind of very deep, intimate relationship with his Father. He was so close to his Father, even at age 12 he was that close to his Father, that When he prayed, he knew the Father heard every word of his prayer. He knew that prayer was going to be answered. God was so carefully concerned with everything that went on with Christ. Then Christ knew that. And that's what I want to talk about here today, how well we know the Father. Let's uh, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. There's several scriptures I want to read and we could run out of time. Uh, It just happens that way. Jeremiah chapter 31, again, one of the great chapters about the coming kingdom of God, the millennium. And uh, the whole chapter is is outstanding. But I just want to read chapter 31 and verse 31. Here we'll begin, yes, 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Two separate divisions of the tribe of Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, they're not going to stay separate because another chapter, chapter 37, shows that God is going to join them, rejoin them again back into one single entity, one single nation uh, after the kingdom is established here under Christ. And he he talks about not not according to the old covenant in verse 32, but verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. This is repeated by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 8 and, and some in chapter 10. But we'll read it here where it was originally given. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Uh, In those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and I will write it on their hearts. That's what God is doing when we sit here in church, when we study the Bible, when we listen to sermons. Every time we expose ourselves to the word of God being preached, explained, counseled, whatever. God is writing his laws on our heart. He doesn't write his laws on pieces of stone anymore, although they are written on stone and may well be somewhere. It says the ark is up in heaven. Maybe the two tablets are up there or wherever they are. Some people think they're under Jerusalem. Anyway, wherever they are, I'm sure God is well aware of it. And if they need to come forth again, I'm sure they will if they still exist, then we will have them during the millennium. Anyway, he wrote them originally on tablets of stone because that is one of the most durable uh, materials you can write on. It doesn't wear too badly. And he put it right in the ark where it wouldn't get anywhere. But he goes on to say, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor saying, and teach every man his brother saying, do you know the Lord? For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest says the eternal i will forgive their iniquity and their sin i will remember no more what an incredible thought that is brethren nowadays it's a common practice when you meet someone and you want to know if they're religious or if you know they're religious if it's a christian religion you say something like well do you know the lord Uh, we don't do it too often i don't think it's a little bit hackneyed Uh, Maybe I've been in the church too long, but it seems a little hackneyed just to ask someone to find out if they're in God's truth or if they even know God at all. But that's one way of trying to find out what people's Christian faith is. Are they religious? Are they uh, Christians? Do they believe they're, they're saved and they're walking with God and they're going to be, as we would say, in the kingdom? They would probably say in heaven. Here he says they won't have to ask one another if they know it. They'll all know it. That will be a given. That will be something is absolutely taken for granted. Because they've all grown up in the truth, they will all know God. You won't have to ask it. It's a, <laughs> the odd thing will be if they don't know God. They will all know him. Now, you know, when I read that and you read it, we might well think that means, well, they know the truth of God. They know the doctrines of the Bible. They know how to find the way to salvation. That's pretty much the way we take it. But, brethren, I really believe, and I'm putting it to you here to this day, that there's a much more intense meaning than just knowing the truth of God. Yes, we know the truth of God, but after you get and you grow up a little bit, you grow in the grace and knowledge of God, you've been in the truth a while, you're looking for something deeper. And Mr. Meredith found that many, many years ago, and he began to preach about Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, but not I, but Christ lives in me. And that's what comes about when you have this very close, intimate, personal knowledge with God. We, well, as I was saying earlier, Christ had it, and brethren, you and I need to have it. We need to come to have that intense relationship with God like Jesus Christ did have. I read uh, Jeremiah 31 there. So today I want to ask you and hopefully make some points that will help you have more of this uh, in your life. How well do you know the Father? Really, we know both the Father and Christ. Please do not distinguish that there's something special about knowing the Father more than knowing Christ. Christ said, "I and the Father are one. My Father and I are one, and there's there's so much alike that if you know one, you really know all about them both." So, um, please don't distinguish that I'm making some separation between Christ and the Father. But why I've picked on the Father is because the Father, we're also told we need to know the Father just as we need to come to know Christ in this very special, close, intimate relationship. If we are really going to be strong in the faith and make it all the way to the end of our life or into the kingdom, to stay faithful to the end, endure there to the end, we need to be close to God and, and Jesus Christ. And if we are that, we will not likely lose our way if, when the hard times come. We've had some hard times. They caught us by surprise if we were there when it happened. And we had to wonder what was going on. How could God let something like this happen? Why, surely the church is going to carry on all the way. God has a church. His church is his church. Surely nothing's going to happen to it. But, well, it did. And it caught us by surprise because that was one thing I would say we didn't expect. Not the way it happened anyway. We could never find quite that in the Bible. And we had to struggle with what we were going to do about it. Were we going to stay where we were with the church or were we going to stay with the truth? Well, if you have a close intimate relationship with God, I don't think you'll have the slightest trouble knowing what to do. that you stay with the truth. Paul said in the book of Galatians, you should know this verse. I'm saying it, you should know it. It's good to know it anyway. Galatians 1, I think it's 6 and 7 or 7 and 8. He said, though I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. Any other gospel, a false gospel. You stay with the truth, not false gospel. And he, he was so, it was so important, he repeated it again. He said, I say again, and he worded it exactly the same. Though, though I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. A double witness, any time we have a double witness, that's a powerful uh, uh, message and a powerful exhortation. All right, how well do you know the Father? I'm talking a lot about the Father. I'm going to read a lot of verses about the Father because Christ spoke about them. And as we read them, I think we can realize what kind of a close relationship Christ had with the Father. And we too can have that same close, close relationship. We need to have that close relationship so that, as I say, we can weather the storms of life when they do come. Let's go to chapter uh, John chapter 17. The final prayer that christ gave after keeping the passover with his disciples and also before they went out to the mount of olives this is really you know we've said this is the true lord's prayer because it was christ's prayer and uh, he prayed it and they heard it and they recalled it he may have prayed a little more than was just written here but this they did recall this much john did the spirit led him to remember it all and he wrote it down so that we can have it John 17, he said, uh, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, reading in verse 1. He said, Father, he'd shown us elsewhere that we direct our prayers to the Father. And, of course, the Father was his Father, his God, the one he came from. He'd been with from all eternity before he became a human being in the flesh and uh, so he was still praying to his father and his father had been with him all these 33 and a half years to this point that was the length of his life you know he died at about 33 and a half years of age all right father the hour has come i said all things come to those who wait well here it came to jesus he'd been waiting for it the many years of his life as he came to see what his destiny was it was what he was destined to do why he came here He said, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. And he surely did by doing everything just the way the father wanted it done and and fulfilled the plan of God in that area. You have given, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him how oh, easy to read over that because we know about salvation and salvation is to live forever and that's what eternal life is and that's what immortality is you can read over it and not pay a lot of attention to it but these words were never available to people in the old testament Oh, they knew that god was eternal i'm not saying they didn't know about eternal life they surely knew the angels had eternal life but it was never offered to human beings back then this is what Christ brought, the gift and the knowledge of eternal life. And he said in verse 3, "As And this is eternal life. Ah, you know, what is love? God is love. What is faith? Faith is. This is a definition. It's, it's a definition. I wouldn't say it's the only thing, but it's a very clear definition. And for me here today, this is exactly what I want to focus on. This is eternal life. You want eternal life? Which one of us doesn't want it? We don't have it by a natural uh, immortal soul or any kind. The Bible says no murderer has immortality in him. It's because he wasn't born with it. And, of course, after he committed murder, then he doesn't, certainly doesn't have the gift of God's Spirit that would give him eternal life. That's how we get eternal life, by having the gift of God's Spirit. So this is it. That you they may know you. Know you. Now, that's not just a casual knowing, knowing the truth of God. It's much more than that. The only true God, and there is only the one God, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God in two persons, the family of God. The family of God is a, a, a single entity, even though there are two beings in it. And Mr. Armstrong explained that so often. I used to hear him, and many of us did. There's two beings, one family. So you can look on God as a single entity, the, the family of God, or you can look on him as the two beings in God. But, there is not three gods, not yet. And when there is three gods, there will probably be three million gods or 3,000 gods when we all join Christ in the kingdom. So I want to talk about this. We need to know Christ. I've already said it's a much more than just simple technical knowledge of scriptures and doctrines in the Bible. It's having a personal relationship that when you kneel down to pray, you know God is there. You know it as surely as as you know the rising and setting of the sun. You don't have any doubt in your mind about God's existence. We live in this day and age when evolution is so popular and pushed around. Believing in God is is often doubted. A lot of people don't even believe God exists. And then there are those who consider themselves in the middle. There's atheists, there's agnostics, and, and those who are absolute believers. Well, that's what we need to be, absolute believers, so strong in our belief that we couldn't have the slightest doubt if anyone said, you know, I don't believe there is a God. Well, I'm sorry for them. But I know there is a God. And most of you know there is a God because you've had this relationship with him. I'm preaching on it today, not so much thinking that most of you don't have it, but you've already had it for years if you've been in the truth for years. But I'm preaching it for all of us to have a stronger relationship, deeper relationship, really reinforce it. All right. We say we know God when we know the truth of God, but we need to know much more than just the simple doctrinal truth of God. <clears throat> Let's go over to John chapter 3, really go back, I guess it is, we're in chapter 17. Let's go to John chapter 3. I'll take a few moments here out of this sermon to talk about this because it always impressed me. This man called Nicodemus, he came to Jesus. He came by night because he was a ruler of the Jews, and if they would found out he was going to visit this Jesus... Uh, they'd probably have thrown him out of the position he was in in the church, uh, the synagogue. So um, he came by night, kind of surreptitiously, so he wouldn't be seen or recognized. And the the story begins, it says in verse 2, he came to Jesus by night and he said, (laughs) at least this is where the conversation starts here in John's Gospel, John 3 and verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with it. He came to Jesus to ask him some questions, to try and get more surety that Jesus was a man from God. But he started by saying right away, "We're not. I'm not here to dispute you come from God. I know you came from God. The, the things you're doing prove you came from God. No one can do what you're doing if they didn't come from God. And what does Jesus answer? Did he say anything about, well, that's right. Yes, I come from God. I think I, I can assure you of that. I'm from, he didn't say that, did he? He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. If I had been Nicodemus, I would have said, how did how did we, what did I say that brought that up? Where did that come from? Where did I get where did he get that? I'd be thinking, you know, you would casting your mind back trying to figure out what might have led to that answer. What always impresses me about this. This man, in a sense, took his whole career in his, in his hands when he came to see Jesus, and Jesus was impressed with it. Maybe he'd known Nicodemus in times gone by. He often discussed with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, so it wasn't that he never knew Nicodemus, but here he came during Christ's ministry, and he confronted Minister Jesus. At least he came to discuss things with him. And Jesus did an incredible thing. He told him the most basic understanding of what the gospel is all about which he'd never even said any other time anywhere else in the gospels you look in matthew mark Luke, and you won't find it you won't find this subject about being born again and about being born of water and being born of the spirit born again you know the churches talk about born again and they think they're born again here and now in this life they think if you're converted as a christian you're born again well I do think it's part of the process of being born again. But real born again is to be born, as it says in verse, uh, let's see, five. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. First, he said, see the kingdom of God. Now he says, enter the kingdom of God. And it does seem to be a two step process. First, baptized. Well, being born of water, I think, is more about being born of the word of God. God's word begets us. It says that in two or three places. I won't go to them, but it does. And so I think born of water is more about being begotten by the word. And that leads us to being baptized and being filled with the spirit. And then we live a Christian life of overcoming. And eventually we're born of the spirit. Notice it says in verse six, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit that passage, that word born of the spirit is not found anywhere else or very rare. I don't know if I've missed one and there is one, but both, basically this is the only place where the term born of the spirit is mentioned. Now we know what we think of being born of the spirit is being changed from flesh into spirit as Christ has already been changed and being like Christ in the kingdom. And he goes on to talk about you can hear the, the sound and the effect of the wind, but you can't see it. And when we're born of the spirit, we will be invisible if we choose to be. And the last verse, verse 8 again, it talks, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Brethren, that's incredible information. That was information, as I say, even the disciples weren't given in that way. I don't doubt they were there that night and they heard it as he told it to Nicodemus. But this man's a ruler of the Jews. Why would he tell it to a Pharisee or a Sadducee? I'm not sure which uh, branch of, of Judaism he was in. But uh, why would he share such a precious truth, such an incredible truth with this man Nicodemus, who, who was not really one of his disciples? And you know, further down in verse 16, we have how much God loved the world. The golden verse of the Bible, the verse that everybody loves so greatly because it tells us that God loves us enough to forgive us of our sins under the blood of Christ and we shouldn't perish but we should live forever. The golden verse of the Bible. Nicodemus was the first person to have that said to him because this continues right on down. Well, I won't take more time about it, but I'm always impressed with that passage. And this is what having an intimate relationship with God is all about. Having the knowledge of God so close and so strong that you don't waver, you know it like the back of your hand. All right, how can we have this close intimate relationship with God? Let's read it. Notice another one. I should read it in Philippians chapter 3. I've read the one in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. That's kind of easy to remember. I've read the one in, uh, in, in, um, in John 17 and verse 3, which is, tells us that eternal life is all about uh, knowing God and, the, and Jesus Christ. Here in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul was also inspired to write something very similar. He said, verse 9, I'm kind of breaking into the middle of a thought, but he talked about how all the things that he did have reason to think he was something special about because he'd accomplished so much as a human being. He said, I treat them as rubbish, trash. That's in verse 8. That he goes on, and to be found in him not having mine own righteousness. The Jews were so centered on on righteousness, but it was too much. It was their own righteousness. It was self-righteousness. The righteousness according to the letter of the law, and they didn't even accomplish that level of righteousness. But they did carry on as if they did. It says, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That's what we call grace. The grace of God is faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Those two, the righteousness that comes from the law is so totally different from the righteousness that you get from faith. Abraham had the righteousness of faith. His faith was counted to him for righteousness. And he showed his faith when he offered his son. And he did it right to the very last moment before God stepped in and stopped him. That was faith to the utmost. When God saw him do that, he knew that Abraham believed to the nth degree. And he knew that he could use Abraham in a powerful way, setting up the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel, his son Isaac and his son Jacob and the 12 tribes that followed from, from Jacob's children. But then he said in verse 10 here that I may know him. The apostle Paul wanted to know Christ and he he certainly knew the doctrines. He knew all the doctrines. He printed so much of it. He wrote so much of it in his letters. It wasn't just knowing the doctrines of God and the truth of God. It was knowing Christ as the Abba Father, the one I mentioned at the beginning. We need to have that personal intense relationship with God the Father so that we know him in a way that we'll never, ever lose it that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He looked forward to the resurrection and the power that would come with it. Christ already had it. The fellowship of his sufferings and, and being conformed to his death. Those last two things are kind of hard to grasp. Why would Paul want to be, uh, go through the sufferings that Christ had gone through? Why would he want to die like Christ had died? And the answer is that Christ, Paul was so intensely desirous of wanting to know Christ in the nth degree The way Christ himself knew the Father, Paul wanted to know Christ so that he knew if he could experience or at least experience as much as he could possibly do without actually having the, the, the event happen to him, that he wouldn't be crucified, wouldn't go through that terrible event, but at least he wanted to empathize with it. He wanted to feel it like Christ felt it because he knew that if he could do that, that would help him in his relationship with seeking God and staying faithful to God. So... He wanted to know God in the same way that we need to know God. All right. You know, how well do you know the Father as we need to know him? I've been saying that and I do keep repeating it to leave no question about where I'm going here today. You know, Jesus Christ did many things when he came here as a human being. And often we might not think just how many things he did accomplish I was writing a list down here, and I came through. I thought there would be about seven things that he did. Specifically, he was the only one who could do it, get it done. And then I still kept writing. <laughs> I finished up with actually 12 points. I'll review a few of them just so you can see the kind of things I'm talking about. The first and foremost thing that Christ did was, of course, he died and was the Savior of all mankind. He surely, we surely have to put that at the top of the list for our sake Because if we didn't have a savior, then there wouldn't be anything else that mattered. Uh, He came and preached the gospel, which is the good news about the coming kingdom of God's government on this earth. Thirdly, he made the Holy Spirit available. And he talked about it towards the end of his ministry more and more. But that, again, was something that he did. If he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have it today. A fourth point was he founded the church. He said, I will build my church. And he called disciples and trained them and ordained some as apostles to carry on the work which he knew needed to go on after he returned to heaven. He brought the new covenant, which is really the old covenant, except for a few things that were passing away, like fleshly circumcision and the the sacrifices, at least for the time being. Since the time of Christ, we don't have a temple and we don't offer sacrifices, but they will come back in the millennium, so they're not gone forever. But anyway... Uh, they, they passed from the Old Covenant under the New Covenant. We don't do that today, but it replaced the Old Covenant with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That was never offered under the Old Covenant. The gift of eternal life was never offered under the Old Covenant. And, uh, oh, what's the third one? The Holy Spirit, oh, and the grace of God, forgiveness of our sins. The gift of grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the gift of eternal life were never part of the Old Covenant. And that's the key, the key features in the New Testament, the New Covenant. Going on, he proved he was the Messiah by fulfilling no end of scriptures in the Old Covenant. They say about 300 scriptures in the Old Testament were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. It's amazing how the Jews couldn't see who he really was. A seventh point, he magnified the law. He made the spiritual intent of the law, which, again, was not so well known, even though it's there in the Old Testament if you look for it. If you know what you're looking for, it is there, but he made it very much plainer. He, as I say, he replaced circumcision of the flesh with circumcision of the heart. And only he could do that. He replaced the Levitical priesthood with the Melchizedek priesthood. He, he showed that Judaism. That was the law of the Jew, the religion of the Jews. It, it's not the, the religion of Moses. So he rejected Judaism and all of its traditions and its, uh, its, its commandments of men. And he instituted baptism as the way to accept Christ as our Savior. Uh, you know many times people say just accept christ as your savior how do you do it well you come up to the front give your heart to the lord and turn in your name to the the man who's collecting names and addresses and join the good church around the corner well there is more to it than that as we know you need to be baptized and so he instituted baptism i know john the baptist did baptism but he didn't baptize for salvation he only baptized under repentance but he did say believe on him who comes after me And that's what Jesus did. He was the one who came after and he instituted baptism for salvation. Finally, and here's the one that I wanted to get to in all of this. He revealed the father. Christ revealed the father. You may know those verses and those words, but I want to emphasize them because that's what I want to turn to next. Come with me to Matthew chapter 11. There's two places stated in both Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel where it talks about christ revealing the father matthew 11 i think it's good to read the scripture see it with your eyes of course we do that in every sermon and every scripture that we can turn to because then it impresses it on the mind and that it writes it on the heart and god's writing his laws on our heart all right matthew 11 and verse 27 all things have been delivered to me by my father As I go through this sermon and I would like to make this point when you come across a verse where Christ says something about the father pay extra attention to it because the only things we know about the father are what Christ talked to us about the father when he specifically said it was the father identified the father and of course. Everything we know about Christ can also be carried over. That Christ and the Father are one. So if something is typical or, or a characteristic of Christ, that too is characteristic of the Father. So we can know lots about the Father, but I want to focus on the Father specifically. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Father except uh, the Son, except the Father. That's a. That's, it's got a lot. Of, there's a lot of meaning in those few words. You can't come to Christ unless the father starts the process through the father we've already heard it said today Mr. Lee mentioned it too the father has to draw us he does take the first step in the process of getting us drawn into the truth Christ doesn't take the first step the father takes the first step down from his throne in heaven where he can see everything of course everything going on on earth and every one of us he looks around and he sees you or me or somebody and he says that person fits what I'm looking for. I'm going to start the process. I'm going to start my spirit working on their mind. And so at that point, the spirit begins to be with us. We didn't feel a thing. It, we're, you know, our five senses are physical and, and the spirit doesn't unite with our five senses. So we don't feel a thing. We don't know anything happened. The only thing we can tell is we suddenly get interested in things that are spiritual and the truth of God. And they begin to make sense in a way they never had before. Anyway, God, God the Father starts the process, and we'll see a little later, we get to it, that, that he turns us over to the Son, and then the Son takes over from there. But nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. At that point when he said that, no one else did know the Father as he knew the Father. And the one to whom the reveal him. That's what Christ is doing. He was doing it to his disciples. They didn't know it in the way they were going to come to know it. When they received the Holy Spirit, all these things fell into place in a way they'd never understood previously. If only they had known it when he was walking around with them, they could have had so much more profitable discussions about it. But it wasn't the time, and he said the Spirit will lead you into all truth afterwards. The other place in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, is almost word for word the same. But let's see it because it is a second reference to the same event. Luke 10, verse 22. All things have been delivered to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and to whom and who the father is except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. So the son also has an influence in deciding who to reveal the father to him. uh, Brethren, we need to have that close intimate relationship that comes from knowing the father as closely as possible much as possible as christ himself knew the father he knew him in a way that it's hard to know here are all these multitudes of people seven billion of them on earth walking around the vast majority of them don't even know a thing about the christian religion they're not living in a part of the world where it's it's preached or understood they're completely blind to it. They have no knowledge of it. Even here in our, our Western world where the Christian religion is the predominant religion, most people don't have the knowledge as you and I those of us in the truth of God do have it. We take it for granted because we've had it, we know it, and it's, it's just a part of us. It's so much a part of us. But we need to have that. And I want to talk about it again here today. Christ made, did make the Father's existence known. Here's the point, because it was the time, the time for the Christ to begin to reveal the Father. The Father is not found in the Old Testament, hardly at all. Try and find any verse in the Old Testament which you can identify and say that is clearly talking about the Father there. The word Father is not in the Old Testament talking about God, the one we call the Father. Christ is called a Father to Israel or a Father of Eternity, Uh, that's in Isaiah 9. He was a father to Israel. He was the only father they had because the father, the one we call the father, it wasn't the time for them to know him. The father can only be found in two or three passages. There's some in Daniel 7 where the Christ is coronated to be king of the world and just before he comes. There's one in Psalm chapter 2 where it talks about the Lord and his anointed. That's obviously both the father and the son. And and one in Psalm 110 where again it talks about the Lord said to my Lord. And it was talking about David's Lord, who was Christ. And it was the father himself saying to my Lord, or oh Christ, David's Lord. You know, um, <clears throat> you, know it's, it's, you can read what it says there. It slipped my memory for the moment. But anyway, this day I have begotten you, I believe. Anyway, it clearly identifies the two people, the father in the Old Testament. Now, they did know from Genesis chapter one that there was more than one person in the family of God because god said let us make man in our image and so that's more than one and then uh, they sinned, adam and eve and then it said let us cast them out of the garden lest they take of the tree of life and become like one of us so the plurality of god was revealed right back in genesis 1 anyone reading it for what it says could have known there was more than one person in the family of god let's go to john chapter 2 uh, Sorry, story uh, john chapter 1 john the gospel of john chapter 1 you know, we think of creation in John, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is one place to start. That's the start where God made the heavens and the earth, where he made the physical universe. But here, in John 1, 1, you've probably heard this said a number of times. This isn't anything new. Uh, there was a beginning prior to that beginning. There was a time when there was just two beings, the Father and the Son, And they hadn't even created the heavens and the earth at that point. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the spokesman, the Logos, the one who was the communicator, the one who spoke the word and it was done. And the word was with God. Well, if he was with God, that means there was two people right there. And he was God. So there were two gods. And yet people dispute this. We've got people who want to believe in one God. They think if you have two gods, that's not monotheism. That's two gods, that's polytheism or something like that. Anyway, it troubles them to think there's two beings in the family of God and, and when we believe the Christian religion and the whole religion of God is a monotheistic religion. No, it's, it's, it's just if you want to make a, a problem for it, a confusion in your mind, that's up to you. But this plainly says, in the beginning there were two gods. They were both called God and one of them was called the word and we're not told anything more about the other one except he was God and we know, get to know him later as God. In the beginning it was with God so it's repeated twice to leave no doubt about the fact Christ was with the father. All things were made through him so he was the one who made the heavens and the earth and it goes on. He was the light of, uh, of the world. and and he was the true light that lights every man but they didn't come to him he was in the world verse 10 the world was made through him and the world did not know him does it just mean know the truth of god and know the doctrines of god no it means to know him as he knew the father and all of us need to know the father as closely as christ did he came to his own his own were the jews salvation is of the jews david was of the tribe of judah The genealogy of Jesus Christ, both in Matthew and Luke, come down through the tribe of Judah, and he was a Jew of the flesh. His fleshly genealogy was Jewish. He had a few Gentile genes in him because some of the members of that genealogy were Gentiles. You can read all that. That's something for you to look at. But nonetheless, he was essentially Jewish, and that's why we say salvation is of the Jews. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's partly what I want to talk about briefly here today. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believed on his name, born not of the flesh, not of blood or the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. It's introduced right there at that time. I want to talk briefly here a moment, brethren, about a trip I got to make to Israel about four years ago. I think it's four years i was thinking it seemed like three years ago my wife tells me no it pretty well was four years ago my son wanted to go to israel he'd never gone and wanted to go and he felt he had the financial means to do it but he wanted to take some of us with him so a group of seven of us went from the church and there was a group of about eight more people with nothing to do with the church and we were a group and we visited israel and it's very special to walk up and down on the land of israel And, uh, see, think about the fact Jesus walked this land so many years ago and the disciples and down through history, all all the things that have happened. And it's going to be the place where the kingdom is centered in the millennium. Well, we had a Jewish guide. You can't have a a tour of Israel as a group, that is, unless you have a Jewish guide. It's the law of the land. You have to have a guide. It's good for the Jewish guiding business. (laughs) Anyway, he was an excellent guide. He spoke really good english it wasn't as fluent as, as we are but it was fluent enough we didn't miss a thing and he knew everything we were saying and uh, for the point of this moment um I, I asked him at one point why is it the jews don't believe on jesus i i just wanted to get his reason i mean i couldn't read in books what christians say about it but i wanted his answer and he said well he was a false prophet wow false prophet hey i'm a christian i believe in this guy how dare you call him a false prophet try calling uh, uh elijah the, the mohammed you know the, the prophet of the muslim try calling him a false prophet you know what they do to people nowadays who, who speak badly of mohammed and of course allah well anyway I, I just accepted it i understood he was jewish but i said what do you mean he was a false prophet why was he a false prophet how was he a false prophet he said well he didn't keep the prophecies. He didn't keep the prophecies. The prophecy was that when, when Messiah came, he was to, to, to stay alive forever. He was to live forever. He was to make the, the Jews the chief nation on earth and never die. So he did two things. Number one, he didn't make them the chief nation on earth. He wasn't king of the earth at that time. And secondly, he died too. When they crucified him, he died. And that was the end of it for the Jews. He was a false prophet from that time on. Now, sometime later, after that, I I got hold of a book, which uh, has meant a lot to me, because it says so much about this reason why the Jews don't accept Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, verse 1, I'm not turning there, you can, if you wish to, later, but you'll remember when I say it, probably. He says, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. And in chapter 9, he said, I have great burden in my heart for Israel. My kinsmen, according to the faith, he's talking about the Jews, of course, who are the children of promise and everything, and yet they're cut off and they didn't believe. Well, this book, it's called The Search for the Messiah. I don't know if any of you have got it. I came across it one day. It was used when I got it. It wasn't new. It was written back in the late 1990s. But anyway, it's written by a man called uh, Mark Eastman and Chuck Smith. Mark Eastman and Chuck Smith, if any of you are interested in trying to track it down. But it's titled The Search for the Messiah. And what am I talking about here today? I'm talking about the search for knowing God the Father in that most personal and intimate way. All right, I've got a whole book, 200 and something pages. I can't, re- I can't discuss it. I mean, I can't take time to read from it. But it says here, for centuries, and this is what is so interesting, and this is really why don't the jews understand when you read what it says here you wonder how could they possibly have not recognized christ for centuries ancient rabbis these are rabbis a hundred to two hundred or more years before christ ever came to earth as a human he says they believed that the messiah would be the son of god later when he came you know they didn't believe he was the son of god they accused him of blasphemy when he called himself the son of god and that's what they kept trying to get him to say so they could accuse him of blasphemy and execute him which they finally did at the end when he helped them by saying, yes, I am indeed the son of God. All right. He, he carefully avoided saying it most of the time, but he said enough things to leave them. in no doubt he was the son of God. All right. And he would be despised, rejected, suffer and die as a substitute sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant, you know, who, who has known me. And he talks about how Christ was going to. Uh, heal us by bearing our sins and our diseases and our sicknesses and, and by his stripes we are healed and he was going to be crucified and he was going to sh- pour out his soul under death they read that scripture and and that wasn't the scripture describing a king who was going to rule over all nations was it so they called that the the the, uh, the suffering servant messiah was going to be a suffering servant but also they believed he would come before the destruction of the second temple that was Herod's temple and that was destroyed in 70 AD. They believed they knew he would come before that temple was destroyed. And so when it was destroyed and he still hadn't come, at least they didn't, they didn't recognize him when he had, they crucified him and they kept looking for someone else to come. But anyway, he, they believed he would come before that time. They knew the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel where he should come about 30 or so AD, as we say, Christian era. And there were even some rabbis believed the Messiah would come twice. Do we believe he's coming twice? Well, of course, he came the first time as a savior and he's going to come as the conquering king over all the earth. But even some of the rabbis believe that. Well, I think that's enough for me to read there. The book gives the details of it all, not the time or the intent of this sermon. But the point is, they knew these things before he came. They knew what they were looking for. In fact, as recently as 100 years before he came, that's what they were looking for. There would be not two beings, two messiahs. That was one of the problems they had. They thought, well, maybe there's two messiahs. One's going to come and suffer and die, and the other's going to be a conquering king. But when you read the prophecies, they could see that really there was only one individual involved in both cases. So the only other alternative was then he would come twice a whole chapter devoted to the fact he was to come twice. But that didn't fit the idea that the Jews believed. Anyway, when he came, they'd they'd lost sight of the fact he was to come and die. They were all focused on the fact he was to come as a conquering king. And instead he came as a humble carpenter, a human being born as a babe and died on the cross, the stake, when the time came. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here, brethren, is that the Jews knew what to look for A hundred years before it, at least that close to the time it happened, and yet they they lost that information by the time Christ came. And they did everything the Bible said they would do, kill him, crucify him, reject him, and he was the suffering servant. All right, let me go on now. I want to to, turn to some of these verses in the Gospel of John uh, in the time we have left, where Christ talks about the Father. John chapter 10. Come with me to John chapter 10, please. In John 10, uh, this is, there's, there's half a dozen chapters which are very much devoted to Christ talking about the Father and his relationship with the Father and urging you know, talking about how the Jews didn't have that relationship. They didn't know the Father, and that's why they couldn't understand. In verse 15 of John 10, we read, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And he went on to say, I lay down my life for the sheep. This is the passage about being the shepherd of the sheep and the daughter of the sheepfold. All right. The Father knows me and I know the Father. And um, in verse 17, I love the Father and he loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep. Picking it up in verse 25, please. I told them, you do not believe the works that I do... Uh, They said in verse 24, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us you're the son of God so we can accuse you of blasphemy. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to say that. But we were wanting to get you to say what we want you to say. We have a law that people who commit blasphemy deserve to die. And that was really behind all the efforts they got to try and tempt him into saying something that wasn't right. He said, I've told you. See, I said he said he told them he was, but he just wouldn't say the words. And you do not believe in the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you don't believe. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's good as saying they know me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than everyone. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Brethren and ladies and gentlemen, as if we have that close, intimate relationship with God the Father, you read what it said there, no one will ever be able to turn you aside from the truth. That's what will keep you strong in the faith, enduring, faithful to the end, being there in the kingdom if you die before Christ gets back here or with Christ when he does get here. All right, let's go to chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 54. Time does move along. Anyway, just verse 54, Jesus said, if I honor myself, it's just a page back in my Bible. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. You know, you know, you pat yourself on the back. What's that worth? It is my father who honors me by the works that he did whenever Christ said, heal this man. Or he said to the father, feed these 5,000 people. Uh, Raise the man Lazarus, bring him back to life. Uh, Let me walk on the water. And God did it every time, whatever it was Christ wanted. Maybe God had put it in his mind to to desire to do that in the first place. Yet, here it is, verse fifty-nine: You have not known him, but I do know him. Do you know him, Father, uh, brethren? Can you say, I know him as Christ said it? Well, no, I make allowances. We're all far short of what Christ was. We're sinful, we're carnal, we're struggling with the weaknesses of the flesh, and we do miss the mark. But nonetheless, we can have... A good part of the way we can know the Father as much as Christ did. Through the power of God's Holy Spirit, we can do that. I'll go to that in just a moment. If I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. Well, Christ wasn't going to be a liar. If he tried to deny that he knew the Father, yeah, he said that would be a liar because uh, he knew so strongly that he knew the Father. But he says, I do know him and I keep his word. And your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And that set them off. They said, "Who do you? what do you mean Abraham lived 2,000 years ago? You, you're here today and that was back then? How could you say you, said you knew Abraham or Abraham knew you? And again, he left them all confused by saying, before Abraham was, I am. That was the name that God revealed to Moses when he said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. It's one of the names of God. I am the self-existent one. I've existed forever in the past and will exist forever in the future. And and when people when when that name was said in the Bible, a lot of the time people, if they were God's people, they fell on their faces. But if they were not godly people, they were they fell backwards by the power of the the use of that name. All right. Chapter seven, verse 28. Again, just back a page kind of going backwards. But that's the way I jotted them down here. Twenty seven and eight. This is somebody other than Christ said, however, we know where this man comes from. They knew he was came from Nazareth and uh, so forth they knew who his mother and his brethren were but when the christ comes no one knows where he is from well that's not true it plainly tells us he was to come from bethlehem and jesus was born in bethlehem at the time he was born all right jesus cried out as he taught in the temple and he said you do both know me and you know where i came from and i have not come of myself but he who sent me is true whom you don't know He kept emphasizing how blind and and cut off they were for all of their religious, religiosity, shall I call it, all their belief that they were such strong religious individuals, how much they walked with God and God was with them and blessed them and led them and all that. He said, you do not know God because if you knew God, you would know me. You do not know me and you don't know him. But verse 29, I know him for I am from him and he sent me. All right, one last verse here before I go to chapter 14. Verse 40, chapter 6 and verse 46. How many people have a desire to see God? Every human being, if they have religious faith, they look forward to the time when they will see God. One of the Beatitudes says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. God, Christ knows how much everyone is anxious to see God. But no one has seen God. It says that across here. Where is it? Whoop, 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 whoop. You have not seen him. That's in chapter 5. Verse uh, 537, it says, You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. No one had seen the Father. No one had seen the Father. We've seen Christ, but we haven't seen the Father. But over here in 6 and verse 46, what does he say? Not that anyone has seen the Father. There he repeats, repeats it again. Except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. That's an interesting thing, is it not? He could have been talking about his pre-existence before he became a human being and he had seen the Father at that time. But I take it that God had given Christ a vision. A vision or actually a, a direct appearance that the Father had come and appeared before Christ after he came, had become a human being. Anyway... He, he told he, he Christ, the father knew what a, a terrific responsibility Christ was bearing to be the savior of mankind. And he did need all the help he could get to have to, to receive that. All right. Time's slipping away here. The last few minutes here. Let me turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, 14, 15, 16. And that final prayer, 17, is what? Happened what Christ spent and the words he said talking to the disciples after, after that he had kept that Passover with his disciples. I used to wonder what these three chapters had in common, because I like to look for things that uh, threads that run through chapters, so it ties them together. Something that is to stand out more than all the rest. It's the, the whole chapter is meant to bring out that one th- that one main theme even with the supporting information. Well, what do we have in John 14, 15, and 16? Especially those three chapters, more than the prayer itself. But those three chapters, we have something that is very easy to miss. And yet, I think the most important thing in these three chapters is what I'm about to tell you right now. Notice John 14 and beginning in verse 16. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, in the old King James, it calls it comforter. The word in the Greek is paraclete, and sometimes they just translate the word right over into the English as paraclete because it means someone who does just that, gives us help, gives us comfort. It's some, back in, in John's letter, he, calls, he uses the word as an advocate. Christ is an advocate. That means a, lo- a lawyer, you know, someone who speaks on our behalf. But he helps us. He will give us another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth which the world cannot receive, it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. He dwells with you and shall be in you. That's where we get the statement that the spirit is with us before baptism and is in us in a different way after baptism. The world can't receive it. It uses the masculine pronoun because the word comforter, the word helper, is a masculine noun in the Greek. And when you replace it by a pronoun, like the word him, they have to use a masculine pronoun. That's laws of grammar in the language. But it doesn't prove the helper is a masculine being or any kind of a being. The Bible speaks continually of God's spirit as being the power of God. And the power of God fills the whole universe at every single moment. It is not a being flitting around like a being would have to flit around trying to get to every spot of any, you know, one after the other. God's Spirit, is, it's like radio waves. It's like gravity, like magnetism. It just permeates the entire universe, and it's not a being. I know there are those who greatly believe in the, in the Trinity and the, the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Godhead, but this scripture and others make it clear if you have faith that God's, the Spirit is not a person. Anyway, Christ promised us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he called it the Comforter. He mentioned it here in chapter 14, verse 15. He mentioned it chapter 15 and verse 26. When the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth comes from the Father. And again, he mentioned it in chapter 16. If I don't go away, the Helper will not come. That's 16, verse 7. Three times he clearly mentioned this coming of the Holy Spirit. This was the one thing he kept repeating over and over. If there was one thing he wanted the disciples to take away from from those words that he was giving them, he wanted them to know they were about to receive this power of God called the Holy Spirit. Now, he's mentioned that three times. There was something else he mentioned three times, even four times. He said, let's read it back in chapter 14, verse 13. Whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do it. As the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, that was repeated over and over again. Chapter 15. Uh, Where does it come up? All right, it is in chapter 15. My eye's not falling on it, although I could find it real fast. He said it there in chapter 15. Chapter 16, he makes it even clearer. Let's go to chapter 16 briefly. Verse 23. In that day you will ask me nothing, assuredly... uh, Verily Amen and Amen, that's where assuredly is were translated from the word Amen. It means of a certainty. Anyway, I say to you, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, He will give you. So we add Christ's name to every prayer we give. We know that's the way to get the prayer reach the Father and He will perform it, because He said it right here. He didn't put it at the end of the Lord's Prayer. He knew people would parrot the Lord's Prayer. And so he didn't add it on the end of there because he didn't want the Lord's Prayer going to the Father because they added the words in my, in Christ's name. He also, um, <clears throat> and they, you know, he didn't put, well, let's go on here anyway. He said, whatsoever you ask, until now you've asked nothing, verse 24, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Three times he said, And you can find them, all three of them, in Matthew, in in 14, 15, and 16. Three times he said, ask in my name. Now, what did he previously say? He said, I will send the comforter. He said, God says he wants us to seek to, to, to have the Holy Spirit. He said, if you know how to give gifts, good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And I'm putting it to you and me and every one of us, brethren. Do we ask God for the gift of his Holy Spirit religiously and daily as we should? Because he wants to give it to us, but he does want us to ask for it too. And if we don't ask for it, well, he might not give us as much of it as he would if we do keep asking. Anyway, three times he said the comforter would come. He said three times ask in my name and you will get it. What are we to be asking for? We're to be asking for the power of God's Holy Spirit and doing it in the name of Christ and He will pour it out upon us. How can we know the Father in that intimate, personal way that Christ knew Him, walked with Him, when He prayed, it went right to the Father? God gives us miracles and, and healings in our lives, and they're very impressive. They make a big impact on on strengthening our faith. The Scriptures tell us so much about God, and we learn so much from the Bible itself. But when we have the gift of the Holy Spirit, that gives us more of the knowledge and the closeness and the intimate relationship with God, that Abba-Father relationship that we can only get by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the last thing Christ said to the apostles as he was about to depart from them, these were the very last words he ever gave in the way of a teaching or exhortation or admonition. He said, I'm going to send the Father, I'm going to send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Three times he said it, I'm going to, I want you to ask for it. And three times he said, ask for it. So, brethren, do we ask for it and do we seek to be as filled with it as he wants us to be? I believe, brethren, I need to put it to you because we've reached 4.30 and I do want to sit down. I've got a lot of activities tonight. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but anyway, do we ask for the gift of God's Holy Spirit? If we want to have that close, intimate relationship with God the Father, then be asking for God's Spirit daily, powerfully, seeking God with every fiber of your being. And he will give it to us, and we will know the Father as Christ knew the Father. And, of course, we'll know Christ just the same, and we need to do those things.